Our world is changing all around us. Each day we are hearing of new ways that our society will be forever different as the result of this coronavirus. All of our lives have been and will continue to be impacted and affected by this worldwide phenomenon. And the spreading of COVID-19 and the resulting response has rightly taken up much of our attention in recent days. We watch for announcements by the president or governor or other officials. We're listening for what will change and when it will change. We understand that we are in the midst of great societal change. And yet, in the midst of all this upheaval, we must remember that the most world-changing, in fact, the most significant events took place 2,000 years ago. Even though there have been many great wars, many uh, natural disasters and inventions and other things that have changed the world during that time, nothing compares to the time when God came to walk upon this earth. And that can be hard for us as moderns. We tend to think that we are on the cutting edge of everything, that the most significant things are in the present day, not in the past. And yet, the Bible tells a different story. When God sent his son to come and walk upon this earth that he created, this marked the greatest event this world has ever seen. For it marked the arrival of salvation. It was the divine entering humanity in order to be slaughtered and put to death by that humanity so that he might save that humanity from its sin. This salvation event, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, was so important that it was recorded by four different men in what we know as the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we have been studying the Gospel of Luke, and in this study, I'm reminded every day that the person of Jesus Christ is one to whom we must fix our minds, that our our hearts and our minds must be captivated with Jesus Christ, even during a worldwide pandemic, even in the midst of the upheaval and chaos of our present day, Jesus must remain central upon our minds. He must captivate our hearts. And so let's turn our gaze to Christ this morning as we turn in our Bibles, our personal copy of God's Word, to Luke chapter 3. So I invite you to do that if you have not done that already. Luke chapter 3, the Gospel of Luke. And we are picking up where we left off last week. Last week we looked at part one of what we're, uh, we're calling magnifying the unmatched Messiah. And today we're picking up the second part of that. This text that we are seeing is from verse, verses 15 through the end of the chapter. And we only looked at the first point last week. We'll look at the final two this week. But as we do in this passage, we're going to see, as we already began to see last week, that Jesus is unmatched in three significant ways. He's unmatched in three significant ways. And as we look at these, I pray that our hearts are drawn to see Jesus for who he truly is, and that we would then worship him as he truly deserves. 
He is the only one qualified to be our Savior. And therefore, He is to be trusted, He is to be believed, and He is to be worshipped. Let's first read our passage. We'll read verses 15 through 22 to begin. Verse 15 through 22. And it says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Again, in these verses and even in verses 23 through 38, we will see three ways that Jesus is unmatched. And first, last week, we looked at his unmatched ministry, his unmatched ministry. This is in verses 15 through 20. The crowds had been hearing John's powerful preaching, and they began asking whether John was the Messiah whether he was the one who was promised. And he answered their curiosity by pointing to one who was superior to himself. He spoke of one who was coming after him, who was mightier and more majestic and more glorious than himself. John said he wasn't even worthy to untie the dirty sandal of this one who was coming. He considered himself, as we talked about, two steps below a slave. He says, I, I'm, I'm not the Messiah. I don't even compare. I don't even come close to comparing with the one who is coming, who is mightier. And yet his main point was to highlight that the ministry of this coming one would be different and would be superior to his own. He says, I baptize with water, but the Messiah, the one who's coming, is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. His emphasis being that the Messiah would bring the Spirit. And this would mark the new age and the new covenant that the Old Testament had predicted. The Spirit will transform the hearts and the people of Israel. It would cleanse them from their idols and their uncleannesses. And this cleansing would be a burning, a, a purging of all their filth. It would set them apart as their pure and holy people. But the Messiah's fire would not only purge the faithful and clean them up, but it would also punish and destroy all those who failed to repent. Those who did not repent and believe in the mighty one who was coming would blow away when the threshing time came. And the crowds were put on notice that the coming of the Messiah was soon and that it did not guarantee life and happiness for them. In other words, just because they were a Jew and the Messiah was coming and the, the Messiah was the Jewish Messiah didn't mean that that would be life and happiness for each individual Jew. They 
did not just need to wait for the Messiah. It was not just a waiting game. There was something they needed to do while they waited, and that was to repent. But as we saw here in Luke's narrative, he moves John off the scene. He exits stage left, and now Jesus becomes front and center in Luke's narrative. And he moves John off the scene by mentioning an event that really would take place a year in the future chronologically, but John moves it up here in order to accomplish that purpose of moving John out of the way. And that is John's imprisonment. He spoke of how John spoke of the Messiah, and then he speaks of John's imprisonment to move on to hear of other ways He's going to record other ways in which Jesus is unmatched, the unmatched Messiah. So, after looking at Jesus' unmatched ministry in verses 15 through 20, we'll now look at his unmatched affirmation. His unmatched affirmation. And we see this in verses 21 and 22. Verses 21 and 22 is Luke's account of the baptism of Jesus Christ. And... It's amazing that in these verses, as Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist, John's name is not mentioned, which is, which is odd. But again, remember John, Luke's point. Luke has already moved, put John in prison. He's already moved him aside in terms of the narrative. And so the, he only mentions Jesus by name here. He wants his readers to see the central figure of the narrative is now Jesus. Now, it's also important to notice that the water baptism is actually kind of downplayed here. Look at verse 21. It says, when all the people were baptized, and when, he, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. I mean, there's no mention of Jesus going into the water or coming out of the water, even though that's implied in the word baptized, which means immersion, immersion into water. But uh, there's no mention of the water here, nor... Is there any conversation between John and Jesus? In fact, I find it odd that, that as much as Luke has shown John and Jesus in the first two chapters, in the announcements of their births, and then their, their births are coming about, and then Jesus' infancy, all these things, he's, he's tracking these two men. And here they finally come together. Because the, the first part of chapter 3 is all about John. We don't see Jesus show up yet. Jesus shows up here in, in the, at the baptism, and yet at this point... There's no interaction between the two. Luke doesn't record. Uh, we know that they interacted. The other gospel writers tell us that. But for Luke's purposes, he doesn't record any of that. Now, grammatically, here in verses 21 and 22, uh, the verbs in, in these two verses are all subordinate, and they all, uh, um, they're all subordinate to the confession at the end of verse 22. Which that means is that, that of these two verses, they are all rising to this climax, climax of the heavenly confession that we see at the end of verse 22. Now the text indicates that Jesus was baptized in the midst of many other people. It says when all the people were baptized. And this doesn't mean that every single person was baptized. There were people that rejected John's message. But it simply means that there was a great quantity of people that were baptized. Now verse 22 is the first, or verse 21 rather, is the first mention of Jesus' name since chapter 2 when he was 12 years old. Jesus is now mentioned and comes on the scene. John had mentioned 
the one who was coming, who was mightier than him, but he hadn't mentioned Jesus' name. Between the time when Jesus is 12, where chapter 2 ended, and here, Jesus had continued to grow up in Nazareth. He continued to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, as chapter 2, verse 52 says. And uh, he would have learned the trait of his father, Joseph, who was a carpenter or a, or a, a, a worker, a, potentially even a worker of stone. And at some point, he takes, care, he takes over the care of the family, taking care of his mother and his siblings, because the best we can tell from the biblical narrative is that Joseph is no longer around. He seems to have died in the intervening years. And so Jesus, as the oldest child, would have been responsible for the care of his mother and for the care of his, his uh, siblings at this point. Now, as we saw in chapter 2, Jesus was well aware of his messianic identity. He knew that he held a special place, that he wasn't just like any other kid, that he wasn't just like any other human, and particularly that he possessed a special relationship with his father. And he knew that he needed to be doing the will of his father, but he had not received any indication that it was time for him to begin his ministry. And even at some of the issue in chapter 2 where he's gone into the temple and is, and is talking with the rabbis, and he's, he's looking to be about the things of his father. He's looking to be in his father's house because he, he recognizes that this is what he was made for. This is what he was here for. And yet, as he listens to his parents, and his parents are asking him to come back home, he realizes it's not time yet. And so he goes and, and spends another couple decades in Nazareth before the time comes. Now, what brought Jesus from Galilee, that hometown where he grew up and was spending his domestic life with his family, uh, from Galilee to the shore of the Jordan, the text doesn't tell us. What brought Jesus to the waters here? We don't know exactly. But I, but I like to believe that there were many things circulating in his heart and mind. Again, as we already saw in chapter 2, that even as a 12-year-old, he had been reading and contemplating and meditating upon the Scriptures. He'd been thinking about the Old Testament and all that it had been saying, all that it says about the Messiah. And so as he's growing up, continuing to read, continuing to meditate upon the Word of God deeply, without the hindrance of, 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 of sin and, and the curse upon him, his mind is able to fully explore and, and think on the rich truths of God. And as he does that, there's got to be a number of things that come into come into play that that caused him to come to the Jordan. I think he went out to John because, number one, like all faithful Israelites at this time, he wanted to follow the voice of truth. In other words, if God was speaking by his prophet again, then Jesus wanted to be there to hear it and to follow it. He had been following the voice of God from the Old Testament, the prophets that were there. And if this was truly the prophet of God in the desert, then he wanted to to be there and to listen as well. But secondly, he knew his relative John was a forerunner. I mean, the stories, their two stories were intertwined. Even their mothers meeting while they were both uh, in utero and, and, and this, uh, this connection that they have. We don't know how much they interacted as boys. Uh, it seems that as soon as John hit adult life, he went out into the wilderness. And so I wouldn't suspect that Jesus and John had any interaction in, in their adult life because of John's uh, obscurity and his, his uh, removing himself into the wilderness. But he still knew, Jesus still knew about John. And in fact, 
the angel had told John's father that John would be the forerunner to the Messiah. And so Jesus knew that his ministry wouldn't begin until John's first commenced. So therefore, if he's hearing that a man named John, he's going, oh, my relative. Whether it's exactly a cousin, we're not sure, but this, this relative, he's, he's begun. And he has to be thinking, this may be the time. He's my forerunner. And now he's baptizing. Now he's preaching. And now people are going out to him. And so Jesus would have heard uh, about John's ministry in the Jordan and the popularity he was gaining. And he must have, Jesus must have been thinking that, that this was the first domino to fall. This was the first thing that was coming in order to prepare the way for the Lord, in order to prepare the way for him to carry on his messianic ministry. I don't think he knew exactly all that was going to go down. He didn't know about the dove and all these different things, but he did know John was the man who was starting things off. He wanted to show support for John. He wanted to be where all righteous Israelites were, and so he goes down to the Jordan. And it says that he came to be baptized by John, that he was also baptized. But we've got to ask the question, why was he baptized at all? I mean, of all people who didn't need to be baptized, particularly John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, big problem here. Jesus didn't have any sins. So why would he need to be baptized? And this is something that the Christian church has sought to explain since the beginning. But we need to affirm, number one, that the Bible is very clear that Jesus did not have any sin. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, 1 Peter 2.22, Hebrews 4.15, 1 John 3.5, and we could go on. But the point is, the Bible is explicitly clear, Jesus was without sin. So why did he participate in a baptism for the forgiveness of sins? Well, commentator Daryl Bach suggests three reasons that I think are helpful to summarize this. Number one, he did this to endorse John and his message. And so Jesus, by accepting the baptism of John, he links his cause with that of John. In other words, to say, yes, this is God's man. He's doing God's mission. You need to listen to him. And therefore, you need to listen to me as well. The second reason is to be identified as the one of of whom John spoke. John had talked about a coming one who was mightier than him. And here Jesus needs to show up to be the one who comes, to be the coming one. And so he does that to be identified. But thirdly, and this is, this is really the theological reason why Jesus did this, is to identify with sinners. To identify with sinners. We see this in Matthew chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, where Jesus gives the only explanation for his baptism as recorded in the Gospels. It says, Matthew 3, 14 and 15 say this, it says, John would have prevented Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it so be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19, 10. And he did this by taking on human flesh by righteously obeying the law at every point of his life, and then by being crucified in the place of sinners. And by beginning his ministry in the waters of the Jordan, he showed that he came to save all those who needed to go through those waters, all sinners who needed to repent. 
Jesus was identifying with all the other people that needed to go through those waters. And that is every single person. And so looking back at uh, verse 21, it tells us that after Jesus was immersed in the water, it says, when Jesus had been baptized, he was praying. Now this is the first mention in, in this gospel of Jesus praying. And it won't be the last. In fact, Luke is unique for the number of times that he records Jesus praying. And so we will see the surface again and again how Jesus, the Son of God, is praying. But for our purposes now, it's important to note that before Luke records Jesus speaking to any people, he records him speaking to his Father in heaven. And it's while he's speaking to his Father in heaven, after he's been baptized, he's praying And it's at that moment the Father chooses to respond. But before we get to that voice from heaven, it says that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. It says the heavens were opened, and the the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now, we don't know what it looked like when the heavens were opened, what the the physiological experience was to be out there, to, to, to look up into the sky. What does it mean the heavens were open? We typically think of a bright light, but we don't know exactly what took place. All we know is that coming out of this opening comes the form of a dove representing the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a spirit, and that means it's not vis- he's not visible to the human eye, just as God the Father is, as, as said in John 4, verse 24. But at this event, the Holy Spirit took on the bodily form of a dove. It says the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now, we can ask, why a dove? It's a great question. And biblical commentators have uh, searched for any significance of the Spirit being a dove, but really to no avail. I could not find uh, all of them were basically saying, we don't know why the Spirit Uh, God chose for the Spirit to to descend as a dove, uh, but simply that he did. And I think that the picture, this idea of a a bird flying down and coming and landing upon Jesus communicates this idea uh, of of coming from heaven uh, down to earth, down to this man, down to Jesus of Nazareth, and this descending and alighting upon Jesus spoke of the Spirit being put on Jesus, and therefore really that visual picture communicated all that that the Lord wanted. That the Spirit's presence was coming to stay upon Jesus. But what did it it mean for the Spirit to come to Jesus? Why was that significant and why did this happen? Well, for that, we need to look to the Old Testament. See, the prophecies of Isaiah were clear that the Messiah would be one who would possess the Spirit in a unique way. And so I want us to turn back to Isaiah now and look at three passages in particular that, that make this clear. That the coming Messiah would be one who would possess the Spirit. Go to Isaiah 11 first. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. Isaiah, large prophet in the Old Testament, one of the major prophets. Isaiah chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through the first part of verse 3. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his root shall bear fruit. 
and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Here we see that there is going to be this shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from its root shall bear fruit. This is speaking about the, the, the Davidic Messiah, Jesse being David's father. And, and so by talking about this shoot or a, or a, a branch coming out is speaking about this Davidic Messiah who is going to come from the, the family of Jesse. And it clarifies that we're talking about one person here because in verse 2 it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. There's going to be one person that's going to qualify in this way. And notice how the Spirit is central here. Verse 2 especially, right? The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Again, you can see the imagery of that dove flying down and resting upon Jesus helps communicate this very truth. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And then he goes on to describe all that the Spirit's going to give to the Messiah and equip the Messiah to do of the wisdom and understanding of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This Spirit is going to empower this Messiah to be a mighty and wise man. But there's more verses that talk about this. Go to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. 42. And this lands us in uh, the servant songs of Isaiah. There are several songs in the latter half of Isaiah here called the servant songs that speak about uh, the Lord's servant, Yahweh's servant. And they, uh, in some places, apply to Israel as a nation, but in many and most places apply to the Messiah, uniquely to the Messiah. As we see, it was fulfilled in Jesus. And the New Testament writers saw that these servant songs were fulfilled in Jesus, as they even quoted them in their writings. But Isaiah 42, verse 1, it says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Again, you see this reality. that There is the servant of the Lord, in whom his soul delights, his chosen one, he says, I will put my spirit upon him. The promise that the Messiah would have the spirit of God. One more verse, go to Isaiah 61. Near the end of the book, Isaiah 61, verse 1. Isaiah 61, verse 1 says, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now we're going to look at this verse more in coming weeks because this, combined with some of the verses following, are quoted in Luke chapter 4. But, which only proves our, our, our point for what we see here at the baptism of Jesus, is that this was the point in which God was anointing and setting aside Jesus as the Spirit-anointed Messiah. The point was so clear. Here was Jesus being baptized, and yet out of heaven, God was sending His Spirit upon, placing Him upon Jesus, thereby showing that God was marking out Jesus as His chosen one, as His chosen Messiah, and was empowering Him now to fulfill this role. Now, 
while the Spirit descending upon Jesus could have been enough to know what God's intentions and what his affirmation of his Son was, because there's enough Old Testament references for everyone to get the point. God is anointing and appointing Jesus of Nazareth as his Messiah. But the Father chose to do more. He chose to do more than just send the Spirit. He chose to say something. And so we, if we go going back to Luke chapter 3, we have Jesus on the riverbank, having just come out of the water. He's praying. The Spirit is resting on him in the form of a dove. And that with the heavens still open, a voice from the heavens speaks. Now this voice can only be the Father. You have Jesus, who we know and will find out even more to be, the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. We have the Spirit in the form of a dove resting on Jesus. And so the only one left to be able to speak from heaven is God the Father. And so it's in this event, the baptism of Jesus, that we have one of the clearest in all the Bible on the distinction between the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this is important to note because there was a heresy in the earliest days of the church and continues even to this day of those claiming that God is just one person. You know, we explain the Trinity, we explain God as the triune three in one, that he is three persons in one God. But these heretics like to say that there is only one God and that he shows up in different modes or different forms. It's a heresy, ancient heresy, called modalism. But this passage, I believe, strikes a, a serious blow to that. How can God be at the same time, in heaven speaking, be as a dove and be as a man? These are three different persons within the Godhead. And as we know throughout from Scripture, these are not three gods. These are three persons of the one God. Now, what does the Father choose to say in revealing His Son to the world? What does He, he, he He's opening up heaven, He's, he's coming into uh, the, the, the world of humanity and is going to speak. What is He going to, what precious words are, is He going to give? Well, He really chooses three descriptions. In our English text, it looks like two phrases, but there's really three different descriptions that He gives of his son, of Jesus. The first he says is, you are my son. You are my son. And God here uh, is using language from Psalm 2, verse 7. This psalm, Psalm 2, is a clearly a messianic psalm talking about God's choosing of his Messiah and the world's response, what the world's response should be to God's Messiah. And so by using this language, I believe the Father is doing two things. He's identifying Jesus of Nazareth as the God-appointed Messiah, and he's identifying Jesus as the Son of God. He's saying, you are my Son, you are the Davidic Messiah, and you are my Son, you are the Son of God. Now, while there isn't a full doctrine of the Trinity expounded here, there definitely are some key foundation stones laid. There's some that would say that the divinity of Jesus is not spoken of at all in this text, but I have a hard time believing that. How can you have God the Father speaking from heaven, 
saying, you are my son, and there not to be any divinity communicated. And the important thing to recognize is what sonship was in ancient times. Today, when we think of a son, we typically only think of a male offspring, someone who is male and is of your offspring, and therefore, no matter what age or any stage of development, he's your son. But that's not how the ancients viewed it. A man could have a boy, but he wasn't a son until he reached the age of 12 or 13, went through what we know to be the bar mitzvah, and therefore became a son of the law. At this point, he would have equal standing with his father in the synagogue. He would be able to to have equal status and the same rights and privileges as his father. And at that point, he would be called a son. Now his father has a son. And so, when Jesus is said to be the Son of God, it means that he has all the same rights and privileges as his Father in heaven. He is equal with God, thereby possessing deity. And we see this throughout the Gospels, but particularly in John chapter 5. Jesus calls God his Father, and then in verse 18, John 5, 18, it says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, they understood that when Jesus says, God is my father, that they understood that he was making himself equal with God. Because when you say son, you mean equal. And so God here speaks and says, you are my son. You are equal with me. I mean, do you see the magnitude of what's going on here? God the Father stepped out of heaven, broke his silence in order to say that Jesus of Nazareth was equal with him. And no other human can claim this. No one else has had the the Father speak from heaven and say these words to him. No one else can claim such a privileged status. Jesus is truly unmatched. But the father's not done. He goes on. Not only does he say, you are my son, he says, you are my son, the beloved. Translators put it together to say, you are my beloved son. And that's definitely grammatically correct as well. Beloved. You see, Jesus does not simply hold the title of the son of God, but he is the object of the special attention and special affection of the father. And this too, I believe, is pulled from an Old Testament text. Earlier, we read Isaiah 42, verse 1, which, to remind you, reads, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. But if we look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 18, this verse is quoted with some slight variation, where it says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. And I believe this citation shows how the Jews of that day understood the reference to Yahweh's chosen servant in Isaiah 42 as an expression of Yahweh's love. He's chosen, he's he's elected, he's selected and put his special love upon this servant, his Messiah. So the father takes this language and declares his deep and abiding love for his son. And then he ends by saying, with you, 
I am well pleased. With you, I am well pleased. You see, it's, it's possible for a parent to say, I love you, son, and yet not be pleased or approving of how that son is living or the choices that he's making. We all know this. A parent loves their child, but doesn't always approve of their choices and behavior. In fact, there's maybe more times than not that we don't. But here, God the Father enthusiastically expresses his approval for Jesus. He isn't just saying, hey, I like you. I'm well, I'm, I'm pleased with you. Yeah, you're kind of a nice guy. No, he's, this is, a, this is a, 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 a dramatic declaration. He's declaring his divine endorsement of Jesus as the Messiah. He is greatly pleased at the life Jesus has lived so far. He's greatly pleased with the mission and ministry that Jesus is embarking on now. And he's greatly pleased with the heart and the posture of Jesus, his son. Jesus, who is humbly submitted to his father's will that we saw even at age 12, was ready to do his father's will and be about the things of his father. Jesus was humbly submitted to his father, looking to do his will, and that delighted the heart of the father. The smile of God truly went from ear to ear on that day as he looked down upon his son. But there is no indication that this love and approval from the father began on that day or ever ended. And so I think we can say with certainty that this statement of God's love and approval is really an expression of the heart of God toward the son at all times, from eternity past to eternity future. The father has and will eternally take delight in his son. And if you want more information on the father's delight in the son, I encourage you to look at John Piper's book, The Pleasures of God. In chapter one, is all focused on the father's delight in his son. But can you imagine what this would have done for Jesus? Again, he's, Jesus is a human like you and I. He lived his life for all these years, into his 30s, as he's studying the Bible and praying steadfastly and devoutly. But I think it, we need to realize that as Jesus prayed and as he grew up reading the Bible and praying to God, he didn't have a, a special phone line to, or communication line to the Father. In other words, I don't believe that Jesus received special communication from God the Father when he prayed. I believe he prayed like you and I pray. He read the words of his father in the Bible. And then he expressed his heart and prayed back to his father. In other words, I believe that up to this point, Jesus had not heard the voice of his heavenly father. He knew that the father was his heavenly father, right? Age 12, he knew that. And yet, here, he hears that father who wrote the Old Testament, who inspired these prophecies, and he, know, he knew that his father loved him. But here he hears the voice of his father. I can only imagine the joy and the comfort, the strength and the confirmation that it gave him as he launched into his ministry. So, what do these verses about Jesus' baptism mean for us today? What is the takeaway for our lives here in 2020? Well, first, 
We need to remember that Luke wants us to see the testimony of the Spirit and the Father upon Jesus. That the Spirit came and rested on Jesus. The Father spoke about Jesus. We need to see that Jesus is the central figure. He is the one who holds the privileged position, and we must worship him as such. No one else was empowered by the Spirit like Jesus. No one else has had heaven open and the Father speak to him with these words. Jesus stands alone as the unmatched Messiah, and therefore he deserves our allegiance. The second thing I think we can take from these verses is that we see a Savior who identified with sinful humanity. Again, he went down into the waters in order to identify with you and with me. The Son of God, equal with the Father, stooped down to walk our path, to tread this upon this earth. And one day, that path would take him to a cross where he would die as if he were a sinful criminal, as if he did carry our sins, even though, as we said, he had committed no sins. And therefore, we worship him for being the friend of sinners, because that means he's the friend of you and for me. But the third thing we can take away from these verses is that as I, as I thought about this declaration of God and hearing the heart of God expressed from heaven itself, I couldn't help but feel a desire deep down in my own soul for me to have, to have God pleased with me in the same exact way. I mean, don't we all want to have the approval of God? Don't we all want the smile of God upon our lives? That he is deeply satisfied with us, pleased with us, and call us beloved? And the good news, the gospel good news that Luke is driving at in his book and really through all the scriptures is that this is exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus came upon this earth and went to the cross and rose again so that all who place their faith in him would be found in Christ. And we're found in him that we receive the approval of the Father. This is what justification means. When we are justified by faith, as we place our faith in Jesus, we are counted righteous in Christ. Not having a righteousness of our own, but having Jesus' righteousness. We are clothed in him. We have his righteousness, his robes of, in, in, in exchange for ours. So we take off our dirty robes of, right, of unrighteousness and we take on the robes of Christ. And it's there as we are in the robes of Christ that God sees us not for our track record of unrighteousness, but the track record of pure righteousness in Christ. We're counted righteous in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He the Father made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We might have that righteousness. It might be counted righteous in Jesus. Or think of, just listen to Ephesians chapter 1 about all that comes to us because we are in Jesus. We are in Christ. To be united to Him means that all of the blessing and all of the joy and all of the, the pleasure of God gets flow, is flows to us through His Son. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, blessed 
blessed, worship to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And in John 17, verse 23, Jesus says that the Father loves Jesus' followers just as much as he loves Jesus himself. Folks, here is the good news. That by trusting and believing in Jesus, we can be called sons and daughters of God. We are adopted into his family. And so we need to stand back in amazement that these words of of, of pleasure and love from the Father are spoken to us if we are in Jesus. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. 1 John 3, verse 1. See, behold, look upon the kind of love that the Father has given to us. Beloved, let us not look at these words and and think them uh, only for Jesus. There is a unique relationship between the Father and the the Son, and I'm not trying to mar that at all. But there is something that we can receive as a part of this because we are in Jesus. And so it's in Christ that we experience the smile of God upon us for all of eternity. This can never be taken away from us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God toward us in Christ. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Friends, this is what motivates us to live into our high calling, to be obedient, faithful sons and daughters of God. Every other religion says that there's things that we must do in order for God to accept us and for him, God to approve of us. But Christianity shockingly says that God has graciously accepted you and me even though we were his enemies. And now we're transformed and set free to obey him. We obey not to be accepted, but we obey because we are accepted. So, we have seen in these verses Jesus' unmatched ministry, his unmatched affirmation and we look finally here at his unmatched ancestry in verses 23 through 38. This final part of the chapter consists of one more testimony to Jesus that he's qualified to be the Messiah. Luke has lined up John's testimony. He's lined up the divine family, the God the Father, God the Spirit's testimony of Jesus and now he's going to give the human family testimony. I'm going to answer a couple questions raised by this passage, and then I'm going to wrap all this up by explaining why a genealogy is significant for our faith. 
first, let's just look at these verses. I'm not going to read all of these names in the full genealogy. Uh, we're going to highlight some aspects of it. But first, let's. the first question that is asked when we come to these verses is, how old was Jesus when he started his ministry? And for that, we can look at verse 23. Look at it with me. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Here, Luke doesn't give an exact age. Notice that he says Jesus was about 30 years of age. Therefore, there's some wiggle room to determine exactly how old Jesus was. Now, as we talked about at the beginning of chapter 2, several months ago, that I believe that Jesus was born in the year 5 BC, and that John's ministry began in AD 29, as we discussed at the start of this chapter. I think Jesus was about 33 or 34 when he was baptized and when he began his ministry. 33 or 34 when he began his ministry. Now Luke mentions the 30-year threshold because it was common in the Old Testament to uh, that uh, common starting age for ministry. David became king when he was 30. The Levites entered into temple ministry at age 30. Ezekiel started his, his prophetic ministry at age 30. So Luke is showing that Jesus entered his life, his life's calling and his ministry when he had matured, just like those in the Old Testament. The second question that we come to this text is, why, why are there two genealogies, one in Matthew and one here in Luke, and why do these genealogies differ so much? Now, many trees have been killed and much ink spilled in trying to answer this question, and we're not going to be able to untangle all of that this morning. But I believe that uh, the best explanation is, to, is the traditional one, which is that the genealogy in Matthew gives uh, Jesus' genealogy through his, his adoptive father, Joseph, and that the genealogy here in Luke gives the, traces his line through his mother, Mary. And there are, uh, most biblical commentators today do not hold to that position. They believe that both of these are through the line of Joseph. And that's fine. But what I've seen as I read all these different opinions about those who hold different positions on these genealogies is that they all can agree on the purpose of the two of them. The purpose of Matthew's was to show the kingly succession, to show that Jesus uh, was uh, truly in the kingly line because after David, it goes through Solomon and shows the kings uh, uh, that came from David. And so it shows his legal, uh, his legal right to the throne, the Davidic throne. Luke, on the other hand, is showing more, tracing a bloodline, showing a natural descent uh, through uh, to Jesus. And so all commentators agree on those two purposes, that that. Luke is trying to show Jesus' descent from Adam and showing him to be a human and, and showing that, that, that bloodline, whereas Matthew is showing the legal right to be upon the throne. But the similarities between the two is that both of them mention David. Both of them mention Abraham and several other names as well. But for our text before us, I believe that it traces Jesus' lineage through his mother Mary. Matthew's opening chapters focus on Joseph as the primary parent. Luke, as we've seen, sees Mary as the primary parent. Joseph is in the background. 
And as we, we've said, Matthew follows the kings through Solomon. Luke follows many unknown characters all the way back to Adam. And there it seems that Luke is emphasizing the human bloodline in his genealogy. And the only parent who shared blood with Jesus was Mary because it was a virgin birth. Now, one of the obvious objections to this understanding is that Mary's name is not mentioned in this text. And it's a, it is a hurdle. But to that, I would say that, number one, that the format of Luke's genealogy is by noting the sons. And so thereby, uh, Mary's name doesn't fit into this structure. Matthew had a way of fitting women into his, his genealogy. I don't believe it fits in Luke's structure here. So Mary's name doesn't fit. Now, the text also makes clear that Jesus was not Joseph's actual father, even though everyone thought that he was. Notice verse 23 again. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And even in the next chapter, chapter 4, we're going to see that everyone thought that Jesus was the son of Joseph. It was just assumed. But here, Luke makes clear, again, another affirmation of the virgin birth, that it was supposed they thought he was the son of Joseph, even though he wasn't. Now, another support for the position that this is Mary's genealogy and not Joseph's is that the, the parentheses here that we see in, in, our, in verse 23 are put in there by the translators, and they're trying their best to understand the text. But I would suggest the parentheses be moved slightly so that the translation would read this way, that Jesus, being the son, parentheses, start parentheses, as was supposed of Joseph, end parentheses, of Heli. In other words, if you take out the parentheses, it would read Jesus being the son of Heli, the son of, and going on. So that as was supposed of Joseph is all the, the parenthetical thought. And what this shows is that Jesus was the son of Heli, which is understood to be the father of Mary. And to support this, we see in the Greek that Luke, Joseph's name is missing the definite article, which every other name in this list has. But as I said before, whether you see this as Mary's line or you see it as Joseph's line, the point is the same. That these, uh, what Luke is trying to do here is trace Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam. And it's important to note that, that, that both Luke and Matthew give these genealogies without apology. They, they gave these genealogies in a time when, when Jews kept track of their lineage, kept track of their ancestry. There were public records you could go and, and find out where your lineage came from. Therefore, Luke published this without apology, knowing that people could, back, could go check it. They could go see whether this was true. And so the point is this, if it did not cause consternation for the biblical writers, then neither should these genealogies cause consternation for us. Trust them as true, as legitimate, and as confirmation, attestation to Jesus' qualification. So finally here, what is the significance of this genealogy for us? Well, we've already uh, spoken to it to some degree. There are 76 names that are given here. Four of them that I simply want to highlight for us. Jesus was the son of David. We don't need to go into this. We know the Davidic promises of uh, the Messiah who would come and would sit upon the throne of David. Jesus 
was that perfect son of David. He was also the son of Abraham. He was a Jew. He came from Israel's patriarch and was able to fulfill the promises given to him. But notice all the way down to verse 38. It says that Jesus was the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. First notice the son of Adam. The, this was not mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. He stops at Abraham. Luke goes all the way back to Adam, the first man. And it shows that Jesus is qualified to represent the entire human race. He's a human like every other person. And just as Adam represented the human race in sin, so Jesus represents the human race in life. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 5. Jesus is the second and last and perfect Adam. He will succeed where Adam failed, and he will bring, he will bring salvation to Adam's descendants. But finally, notice that Jesus is identified as the Son of God. The son of Adam, the son of God. Now, there's a sense in which Adam was the son of God. He had been created by God. But Jesus, when we read that Jesus is the son of God here, we know that in one sense he had a human body like Adam did and therefore was created in the image of God. But we know that from the declaration of God given just a few verses prior that where God says, you are my son, that Jesus it takes on a special meaning to say that Jesus was the Son of God. He had a special relationship with the Father that no one else possessed, not even Adam. Jesus is the one and only Son of God. He's in a class by himself. He is the divine Son of God. And therefore, the point is this. Jesus is able to be your Savior today because he was a son of Adam and son of God. He had normal human blood running through his veins. He was truly human at every level. He was born into Adam's race to save us who were trapped in Adam's corruption and condemnation. And he accomplished this salvation by taking our curse. He took our judgment that we deserved upon himself when he died upon the cross. On the cross, the father who dearly loved his son crushed his son so that you and I might know life. Therefore, we must praise our triune God forevermore. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all engaged in the accomplishment of our redemption. The Father is the architect, the Father, the Son is the achiever, and the Son is the or the Spirit is the applier. So I ask you, have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul? He is the unmatched Messiah. He is the only one that can lead you out of your darkness. He's the only one that can give you eternal salvation, that you might know God. Unless you turn from worshiping self and turn to worship Jesus, you will find eternal judgment awaiting you, either when you die or when Jesus returns. There is a day of reckoning. There is a judgment day. In our pride, we want to think that we can live and we can do whatever we want with no consequences. But the Bible teaches a different story. But that is why Jesus is good news for all of us. He changes the day of reckoning to a day of reunion. Either we will face him as our judge or as our redeemer. 
And the difference between those two, whether we'll face him as judge or redeemer, is determined by what you do with Jesus today. Will you repent or will you rebel? I pray God leads you to repentance and worship as you magnify the unmatched Messiah. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we praise you that you delighted in your Son, that you overflowed in your joy and your delight in the one and only Son that you sent to walk upon this earth. Father, we are humbled to think that Jesus, who existed in eternity past in perfect communion and joy with you, came and took on a human body forever to be linked with his creatures. We see him even identifying and linking with us through this baptism here. Father, I pray that you would please direct our hearts in the midst of all that's going on in the world, all that's going on in our lives. You'd help us to focus on Jesus, your son, that you delight in. May we follow you in the delight of Christ. And may he capture our hearts today and the days this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May Jesus truly captivate your heart and your mind this week. Look forward to seeing you soon.